Hello, everyone, and a warm welcome to all of you again to Intersections, a place where we are seeking to create a community where for a period of time, for this hour that we have together, your life intersects with your life, with your life, and with mine. And we come together to explore some shared truths and ideas with the aspiration and hope that we can walk out from here with some deeper and broader understanding of life and of leadership by dissolving all kinds of boundaries, boundaries between science and spirituality, between inner and outer, east and west, profit and purpose and what have you. As you know, our conversation today is meant to be more just between you and me. We are not going to have the privilege of having a guest in our midst as we have for the last few intersections. Those have been incredibly enriching opportunities that we've had to grow and to learn through that conversation that we've had with some highly accomplished people, some great thinkers. And um, I thought this would be a moment where we could just step back, examine sort of what kinds of questions and issues are on your mind and have more of a direct discourse on those. Many of you have written some of these questions to us, which I am grateful for. Give me some time to understand what's on your mind. And I'm going to be starting off with some of those questions. And at the same time, I'm looking forward to seeing what else is on your mind. And so we will, from time to time, invite you to share your questions here in chat as well. So without further ado, let's get started. I hope you are well. Warm greetings. Welcome. So um, one of the questions that um, I'm seeing here that you've asked is, um, I'm interested in knowing the effects of positive language in our life and mind. Many thanks. This is a topic actually very close to my heart. It's not one that we have a whole lot of formal, I would say, training in society, in media, in our education system. But there is, in fact, a fair amount of research today that supports what many great faiths and traditions have always in some ways known, which is that in some ways, we are the products of our thoughts. We are the products of the kind of language we choose to use. So for example, in one of those streams of research called priming in psychology, what they've shown is that if I were to find a way to embed certain words, certain ideas, certain phrases in your mind right now, let's say by inviting you just in a very sort of seemingly harmless way to play some kind of like a word game, you know, as a subject in a psychological experiment. But it's just that in that game, I have embedded words, such as, for example, slow, decrepit, old, feeble. And then for some other people playing the same game, I have embedded words such as dynamic, energetic, fast, etc. But it turns out that after you played that game, if I ask you to actually take a walk from one room to another room at the end of a long hallway as part of the continuation of that psychological experiment, it turns out that those people who were playing the game, which had the first class of words, like the feeble and decrepit and slow, they ended up walking slower you know, to the other room versus those people who had those um, words like energetic and fast and you know, et cetera. They ended up walking faster. Similarly, they've done some experiments at MIT where they've actually shown that um, if I were to give you a financial incentive to do well on a certain test, again, this was as part of a psychological experiment. And initially, I told you to do a self-scoring of yourself so that you just scored how many right and wrong answers you got at the end when I gave you the answer sheet. Well, it turns out that a number of people would cheat because they would get more money as part of the experiment if they scored higher. And so they'd end up doing some cheating at the end and report a higher score than what they actually got. But if they were asked before the test to just um, in that moment right there, be reminded that they're meant to follow the MIT honor code, or they were asked to write down as many of the 10 commandments as they had, it turns out that they were actually a lot more comfortable in being honest with themselves and in foregoing some of the financial reward by not reporting an inflated score. So the in the moment, words, ideas, and thoughts that you are impulsively, subconsciously from time to time being imbued by, those have a subconscious but very tangible impact on your choices, your decisions, your behavior, even your feelings. If you study the field of cognitive therapy, well, that field is all about how our emotional state, whether perhaps from time to time we grapple with 
anxiety, fear, anger, depression, etc., or whether we live in states of more optimism and joy and fulfillment, etc. But it turns out that a lot of that has to do again with the labels and the words and the thoughts that percolate in the back of our mind. And so from a couple of these different scientific streams, it is becoming more and more clear that there is power to being very mindful of the selection of vocabulary and language that we use. And to almost over time seek to program our minds to be able to allow you to on a more kind of like scripted basis from time to time, just like your mind will replay a song from your teenage days or what have you, which has just been deeply programmed in your mind. Why not program in the mind uplifting phrases and affirmations and poetry and lyrics of songs, you know, etc. So that when the mind is seeking to just kind of play some of that subconsciously, it is lifting you up rather than pulling you down. So definitely, I think there's just a lot of impact of the words that we speak. All right. So um, here's another question that one of you is asking. I think that one thing that is very important in a leader is his or her empathy with the team, with the environment, with the goals. But how is it possible to grow empathy when we are already adults? Well, let me offer up something to you. Uh, there was a moment in the life of Nelson Mandela. He was an adult. He was, in fact, a very, at that point, highly regarded rebel against the um, apartheid regime in South Africa. And he was seeking to be in hiding from them because he was on the look, the, the security forces of the country were on the lookout for Nelson Mandela to arrest him on certain charges. And he was hiding in the home of a friend of his. And he recounts this incident in his book, Long Walk to Freedom, his autobiography. And he says that this one time I was in the backyard of this friend and he gave me an air rifle. And he said that uh, he invited me to actually show my shooting skills. Because by the way, you should know that Mandela had gone to certain other parts of Africa to learn the art of guerrilla warfare because he was seeking to bring some of that kind of more assertive, more aggressive, more violent form of protest and rebellion to South Africa because of the apartheid conditions there. And so in that moment, the friend says, well, you know, Mandela, let's see what you've learned. You know, do you think you can take down that bird? And Mandela said, I proudly put the rifle on my shoulders, pointed to the bird and shot it down. And he said, in that moment, there was a child who was kind of bursting into tears. And it was the son of my, of my friend. And that son of my friend looks at me and says, how could you do this? Can't you see how pained and unhappy the mother of this bird is now going to be? And Mandela says that I was shamed in that moment because I realized that this child had more compassion than me. Now, the Mandela that we know, the Mandela that became the president of South Africa, the Mandela that became a healer, the Mandela that became a peacemaker, that built bridges, that embraced even the original apartheid, you know, enforcing communities in South Africa, that sought to take South Africa on a journey towards a more colorblind future. That Mandela, with all his compassion and grace, was not a Mandela that was naturally you know, just kind of born with having those qualities. He was a Mandela who had to learn through the lessons of life, how to get in touch with his heart, how to be aware of the deeper stirrings within and to seek to find a way to express them in all he did. And at least one of those moments of transformation and growth for him came in that moment with the small boy. And I want to offer that story up to you because I want to give all of us that affirmation and hope that in fact, there is today a lot of even scientific research that says that you and I, regardless of how, how much hair we have or don't have, or how gray the hair is or not, or what stage we're at at our life and in our career, we never stop growing. If we are so drawn and interested in wanting to invest in cultivating any quality, we never stop growing. There is within us, typically, at the minimum, if you want to call it, two identities. One, the person that we are today, and the other, the ideal form, the perfect form, that beautiful form that we seek to become. And from time to time, we do get glimpses of this perfect form. We do become this perfect form. We express that perfect form. But then again, from time to time, we get you know, caught up in the messiness of relationships and life and urges and demands and insecurities and what have you. And we depart from that state. That state always exists within us. That state of empathy that you're referring to in this question, in some ways, is always there within us. It is more about us awakening 
to that highest potential within. And that awakening is something that with some amount of intention, some amount of discipline, some amount of practice, some amount of failure, some amount of rebounding each time we do fail to seek to try again. And over a period of time, this is something that any or all of us can seek to aspire to become just like Mandela did. You know, in the case of Mandela, he once said, he said, you know, people, you know, call me a, a saint. He said, but I'm not a saint unless you think of a saint as a sinner who never gives up. So let me take a third question from the list that um, I have in front of me from the ones you've sent me. How do you meet challenges while dealing with difficult people? This is, uh, I mean, have any of you been going through life without having difficult people? If that's the case, then uh, we want to applaud you and celebrate you. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear. It's, it's one of the most fascinating, I think, things to me in life that uh, at the very core, at the very center of our existence is often our relationships. And yet relationships also offer us in some ways the greatest crucible in which to help sculpt character, both for ourselves and support the sculpting of character for the other person as well. Because our interactions in our relationships, you know, they're so deeply felt. There is so much at stake. There is this emotional kind of bond or lack thereof, etc. You know, very different from the interaction that you might have with a product or a physical something or the other, a human being on the other side. And so um, I think it's, it's a really important thing for us to explore the science of relationships. We have a whole class on that, you know, which we um, have as part of our digital library. I'm going to extract a couple of ideas and thoughts from that for you today. So when it comes to dealing with a difficult person, you know, the, the um, instinct is for us to immediately judge their behavior, to judge what and how they're saying things to us uh, and to feel miffed and unhappy and disappointed you know with what's happening in our interaction with them one test that i would encourage all of us to take is to look at the last interaction that you had with that kind of an individual that was upsetting to you that didn't go in a direction that was rewarding for you and to ask yourself well what is it that he or she said or did in that moment and then how did i respond this by the way is something that i've learned from Dr. David Burns from Stanford University, a preeminent exponent of cognitive behavior therapy, and also a master in coaching us on relationships. So if you ask yourself that question, the last time that I had an uncomfortable, difficult, upsetting interaction with this person, what is it that he or she said and how did I respond? Well, then next I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, in your response, were you operating from a place of great centeredness and calmness? and um, a sense of equanimity? And also, were you operating with a great keenness to connect with the other party and understand the pressures they might be facing, the feelings that they might be experiencing, the thoughts and mindsets that might be informing and guiding how they're responding to you, what lived experiences they might have had that brought them in the present moment to engage in this way with you that you find disappointing, right? So simply put, were you centered and were you connected with the other party, right? And then I might ask you, in addition to being centered and connected, were you doing your best to also help the other party? Because who knows, you know, maybe they've had a rough day. Maybe they're really hurt or disappointed or pained about something with you or someone else or what have you. Were you seeking to do your best to also have them operate from their best version of themselves? Were you seeking to help them get into a place of, you know, lightheartedness and joy and calmness? Did you feel that it was your responsibility to at least do your best to get them to that place? Because after all, you want something from them. You want grace from them. You want, you want some kind of meaningful exchange with them, right? Otherwise, you can just kind of like walk away from that relationship anytime you want. But if that's what you want, then did you take some ownership in putting them in a good place, right? Either by appreciating them in some way, reminding them on some like beautiful common experience that you had together, maybe suggesting that you should come back to this conversation later, not right now, because you know you realize that they're a little bit stressed or agitated or something, right? Did you do your best to get them you know, centered? And also, did you make sure that you expressed your truth in a way that was going to allow for them to stay in a place of centeredness and calmness? Did you shy away and just not engage and just pull back? Or did you, did you say, hey, so-and-so, you know, I, I thank you for this. And I'm grateful that you've shared this with me. I can see that there's something important here for us to resolve. But I, and at the same time, I, I, and I want to do that. I, and at the same time, I also want to suggest and invite and ask that we also think about this and talk about this. Because, 
you know, this is important to me. I value very much, you know, the long term, this aspect and that aspect of a relationship or this project or what have you. And and therefore, I know it'll be for our collective good if we did dedicate some time to this. I know it's a little bit of a rush right now, and I'm asking for that commitment, much as I'm willing to make this commitment, etc. Were you, in a kind and thoughtful and respectful way, able to also state your truth so that they could connect with that part of you that is uncomfortable, hurting, you know, looking for some resolution and what have you, right? And so it's a four-part test of were you centered, were you connected, were you trying your best to get them to be centered and get them to be connected? And usually when I ask that question, you know, most of us don't give ourselves a four on four. We might give ourselves, you know, a two on four, a three on four, you know, a one on four, sometimes zero. I really, you know, come across an individual, maybe one out of 50 or so, who will give themselves honestly like a four on four. If you've given yourself a four on four, well, that's the best you can do. That's the most you can do. And then the only thing you can add to that is patience. Just to keep sowing those seeds, sowing those seeds into your interactions, just praying and hoping that at the right time, the insight and illumination comes to the other party to allow them to behave in a way that is appropriate, right, to you. Or choosing to walk away from the relationship where sometimes that actually makes, you know, right sense as well. But in most cases, I would offer, we haven't yet played our best game. And to play our best game, we got to take on this responsibility towards seeking to get a four on four consistently in those moments that we feel provoked. Now, how you do that, of course, is a richer, deeper story in the science of conflict management, relationships, you know, et cetera. I am you know, very inspired by Dr. David Burns' work. I'm also inspired by John Gottman's work from Washington University, the whole science of relationships that he's forged as well. So in the interest of time, this is about how much I can offer for the moment. And I wish you well on that journey in rebuilding bridges and getting to a place of deeper understanding even with those people who otherwise are difficult to us. Sometimes they are the catalyst and a silent invitation from life for the most important kind of growth that we can go through. All right, Paul, how are we doing? Are there any, any sort of comments or questions from our friends that um, you'd like to cite? And welcome to the show as well, Paul. Good to have you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Uh, yeah, there's lots of questions, and I think uh, a good one came in early. And so forgive me if I don't pronounce your name perfectly, but Prashant is asking, is new normal not an oxymoron? What are the most critical competencies of a leader in the current situation? And what is the new normal? Yeah, thank you for uh, asking that, Prashant. I think there was another question um, someone else has asked here as well. Gail, what are the one to three most important things leaders can do to seize the opportunity that the lessons of COVID-19 make possible to make fundamental shifts in the direction they seek to lead and the ways in which they're doing that with their employees? So I think very similar. I wouldn't claim that um, I have a complete and definitive response to that. I think one of the things that I'm going to caution all of us is that while there has been in a very well-intentioned way, a number of uh, active expressions from experts to help light the path for us you know, going forward during these cloudy and difficult times. We are going through such an unprecedented moment in the history of our generation that unless somebody is truly highly illuminated, it is quite likely that most of us are still making our way through this fog. And we will have a much better grasp and appreciation and understanding of all of the things that it was meant to teach us and the ways that it will transform us when we do so with the benefit of hindsight 2020. <laughs> when we look back right to 2020, rather than seek to immediately feel very confidently that we know where this is headed. All right. So it's a work in progress. It's a story that is still unfolding. That's it. Here are a couple of thoughts that I want to propose and offer to you. I think that there is to me a strong likelihood that a number of us in the human community are going to recognize in this present moment a dialogue that is going on between the planet or nature and, and us as humanity, where nature in some ways is protesting and is saying, hey, listen, I am also part of the living ecosystem. It is not just humanity. When you seek to, for example, in today's time, practice inclusion and practice compassion, do not limit it just to the human race. <laughs> think of all forms of life. Think of life at a more universal level. And think of what it is that you're doing to honor life, to harmonize with life, to build a kinship and connection with life. And then how each of us decides on how to grow in that regard, whether it is in our relationship 
with the environment, whether it is our sensitivity to things like pollution, whether it is in our connection with animals, whether it is our commitment to living a life that is more in some ways aligned with nature than with perhaps certain aspects of modern civilization that take us away from you know our core, from the core of the planet. I think those are going to be choices that ultimately each of us is going to be called to make on our own. And perhaps different communities will make different calls on how to, in many ways, improve the quality of modern life to bring it in greater harmony with nature. So that would be one thesis I would have for a leader is to A, do that deep thinking for themselves and depending on what community they're in and what organization they're leading, etc., to think about that community, that organization's relationship with the world beyond humanity to include in that expanding heart a compassion for all life forms and for the planet and for the health of this beautiful human to nature kind of equation for the future. And then make the appropriate sort of pivots in their mission, their purpose, their choices of how they actually operate their business models in order to respect, you know, this underlying sort of dynamic and commitment that humanity and nature have with each other. Just like we draw from nature, everything from oxygen to, you know, all the fresh fruits and vegetables that nourish us to, etc. Well, we also owe it to nature in some ways. The second thing I would offer is that I think this pandemic has been an incredibly humbling experience, isn't it, for all of us? It has made us recognize that so much lies beyond the control, even of the richest, most educated, most successful, most popular, most technologically enabled, most powerful, most militarily you know, advanced community, nation, leader, individual, home, etc. <laughs> right? And in almost one fell swoop, overnight, There are some dynamics that can be unleashed, which make us suddenly realize how little we actually had in control, how limited our ability to forecast the future actually was. If you were back here in November 2019 and you had to forecast what quarter one 2020 would look like, compare that to what actually happened. And so um, regardless of the PhDs that we have, the advanced technologies we have, the money we have, etc. We have to recognize that actually modern civilization hasn't come anywhere close to giving us a sense of enduring and 100% reliable security in the ways in which uh, humanity is um, you know, operating today. And if that's the case, and yet on the other hand, it is in natural hunger and need in all of us to seek security. There is a lot of research to show that from the time you're a little baby, we show signs of flourishing when we feel a sense of security. And we show signs of breaking down when we actually, for example, with our caregivers, with our parents, where we face a famine with regard to that sense of security. And so if security is so core to the human condition, and yet is something that we just cannot guarantee with all the genius that we have today in the world, then where is it gonna come from? And I would offer you, that there is, in fact, another science, the inner science that shares and shows that if we practice certain internal disciplines, if we take on an inner journey, just like we do an outer journey, well, then there is, in fact, a path, not necessarily for us to be reassured about material splendor, but ultimately the whole goal of that material splendor was to be able to take us to a place of calmness, and happiness, fulfillment, and joy. And those qualities are ultimately more spiritual and psychological than they are purely material. And that is a journey that we can make within each of us. And when we strive to activate more our core and, in a sense, take a critical look at, in a sense, the mess, right, of thoughts, emotions, reactions, habits, hungers that we have within and start to gradually do a cleaning up of that through certain practices like the practice of gratitude, practice of appreciation, the practice of challenging and shifting our mindsets, the practice of mindfulness and meditation. When we take on any or more of these practices, we create the conditions when we start to realize something that St. Francis of Assisi once said, which I find so beautiful, when he said, what you are looking for is what is looking. In other words, if what you and I are looking for fundamentally is security and joy and happiness, well, who is doing the looking? It is your spirit, isn't it? Your spirit from within 
is doing that looking. And if you turn your lens within and nurture that spirit that I call your core and connect with that core, you will discover such limitless riches in that core where that same happiness and joy and security that you were looking for is actually already present in that core. So what you are looking for is the what that is looking inside us. So I would say that as a leader, I would A, be really committing to go on that journey for inside out growth, for where I can present myself to my team, to my organization authentically as somebody who is drinking from that inner fountain, deeply connected with my core, role modeling that expression of that core energy and everything that I do to show people a living and breathing example of the kind of reassurances that we can and guidance and grace that we can get from them. And then I would be seeking to encouraging some of those practices in my community, encouraging people to take small steps towards a disciplined discovery of their own inner riches, because that's from where then each of us will be in a position to arrive in the workplace, not because we are seeking a certain reward or an acknowledgement or a promotion or a certain big prize like a bonus, etc. Although those are, those are things that are good you know, for us to have, but we'll arrive at the workplace ready to serve, ready to serve a noble and uplifting cause, being able to kind of bring our best self to that cause, because kind of like most of the core hungers that I have, security, happiness, etc., are already being met from within. And I would offer to you that every leader ought to feel a certain sense of responsibility in helping to activate that core, both in themselves and the people around them. Paul, I'm happy to invite you back to um, share a couple of other questions. So one theme that's coming in is, is just around actually wanting to get to know you a little better. So Pooja writes, would love to know more about you and how instances, circumstances have helped you become who you are today. And there's been a couple of questions that are really trying to kind of just get to a, some level of clarity around what it takes to kind of arrive at the ideas and positions that you have and why you choose to live your life the way you choose to and the, the kind of focus that you have and, and why this became your life's purpose. So I think that that'd be a good place for you to, to go for at least a little bit. Uh, yeah, I don't know how far you want to go back in my, in my career, in my life. Um, but thank you for asking that. It just takes me down memory lane. I would say that two most um, crucial forces in my early days were mathematics and mysticism. I think I must have been about eight, nine, ten, something in that range where I started to fall in love with mathematics. By the time I was 10, I was very drawn to mysticism. So, um, so yeah, back when I was just being you know, raised by my parents, you know, they were invested in some of these ideas themselves. My father was very passionate about mathematics. Both my mom and him were very deeply delving into their own kind of like, what's, what's the purpose of our lives and what's our relationship with God and you know, higher force and all that. And so I found books. I found a community, I found a set of monks, you know, with whom I could interact with and get so much rich learnings from. And so that started me off. The mathematics really pushed me towards a discipline to be very precise, be very logical, be very structured in an inquiry about things like what happens after death? You know, what is my connection with the rest of the universe, not just this planet? Is there a way that I can connect with the stars I look at in the sky? Is there a way to be, you know, in some ways immortal? <laughs> you know, um, why is it that we feel so much affinity for people who are in our immediate family? Why should we not feel that affinity for people in other families and with rabbits and with any part of life that is around us? So I had these kinds of questions and I'm grateful for the kind of inquiry I was able to do more through the spiritual traditions of the world, particularly the mystic traditions, where people from you know, different you know, parts of the planet have just been inspired and drawn to wanting to study how they can rise to a higher consciousness, a higher consciousness of unity, of universality, of integration, of bliss, right from you know, doing certain kinds of journeys within them, rather than waiting for a moment where, let's say, they die and through a certain portal, they enter into some kind of a higher place. No, what about in the here and now? What are some practical practices? Now, the main practice that for me, you know, I was invested in at that time was meditation. Although I did not give it its full due, you know, in my teenage years, and I continued to pursue mathematics, for a while in my 20s, I got really invested in my outer, you know, hungers, or wanting to excel, you know, just like all of us in the academic and professional arenas and social arenas. And, and I got so swept up in that, that I started to kind of, in a sense, ignore or marginalize the inner hungers that I had sparked so early in my life. 
And while the investigations I made at this early stage really helped me think and approach life, you know, with a certain kinds of, you know, empowered lens, uh, more if you want to call it, you know, psychological and spiritual lens, I was still not really playing the game to my fullest potential or anywhere close to that. In my early 30s, after 9-11 happened, which kind of like really shook a lot of us up in terms of like, what am I doing relative to what's really of value to humanity? And I also started to think about how my father, I felt, had been like so helpful to, you know, so many people in his career. And my mother was this incredibly loving force, you know, to all that, you know, came her way as a homemaker. And I'm like, what am I doing to be of help to anybody? <laughs> yeah, I'm like trying to excel at this data kind of like modeling and at like consulting and entrepreneurship, etc. But how am I really fundamentally helping anybody? At that point, I slowed my life down, came to Columbia, started to teach, really to create like a space, a space both within myself and, and outside myself for intellectual inquiry, for spiritual discovery, for slowing life down and being reflective. And over the course of the next two, three years, which is about 15 odd years ago, 16 years ago, I am so grateful that the right kind of ideas and thoughts and aspirations started to take root within me. In particular, I started a regular meditation practice based on the teachings of Yogananda, who founded Self-Realization Fellowship. That was the most central pillar and breakthrough in my life. And then I'm deeply grateful to Columbia for allowing me to start running some experiments where I was able to start to teach classes around some of these core passions that I had. I also, you know, around the human condition and human nature and transcendence and what it takes for us to excel and, you know, thrive and flourish in, in leadership, but also in life, those kinds of things. And I'm also incredibly grateful to be living in today's times because, you know, a place like Columbia would have wanted all of this to come from a scientific footing. So while I'd read all those books, you know, from the mystics, you know, back in my teenage years, I had to find a way to also anchor and found any claim and offering and thought I had from the vantage point of evidence-based science. And today, you know, what's really, you know, fortunate for all of us is that there is a lot of great interest that scientists are taking from disciplines of psychotherapy and neuroscience and sociology and behavioral economics and psychology and, you know, sociology and beyond. And so I was able to actually acquire a lot of evidentiary proof points about the kinds of ideas and thoughts that intuitively from my own sort of journey over the last, you know, 20, 30 years, I had been discovering for myself anyway. And that then became the path that I, over the last 10 odd years, have cemented. Today, I feel so much more clarified and at peace about my purpose and about more of a harmony that I see between my inner and outer worlds. And it becomes my greatest wish and desire and that of my team at Mentora as well to be able to support all of you in that same quest, in that quest where ever deepening inner mastery allows us to experience ever expanding outer impact. In other words, not dichotomizing the two, not making a little time for this and then doing this in the rest of the time, but to see the outer as a natural expression of your core and also to see the opportunity when you're doing the outer to actually continue to develop your core. There's a question that is somewhat related. So let me just take that from the list that I have here that you've shared with me. Is there anything like psychological evolution? Do human beings evolve in the psychological or spiritual arena? Is there anything like a psychological or spiritual competency? I think it's a beautiful question. I do think that the ultimate the ultimate way to think about spirituality is through a psychological lens. And the ultimate way to think about psychology is through a spiritual lens. Here's what I mean by that. So, so, so in other words, I'm complimenting you in this question for putting those two together. Here's what I mean by that. Sometimes spirituality, especially in the frame of religion, has been more focused on certain ritual behaviors, certain kinds of practices that have made one religion identify with certain kinds of festivals and holidays and practices and another religion with other beliefs and festivals and practices and as they follow their prophet in a well-intentioned way and they follow their prophet. But when you take a more psychological kind of view, then you are recognizing that in fact, a lot of the reality of a spiritual or religious path is what is happening within us, not necessarily what is being shown on the outside. Because after all, just think about it. It is so easy for us from the outside to you know, go to a certain church or you know, sit in front of you know, a priest and you know, just like, Put on a certain, if you want to call it, even pretense, you know, of being good, you know, for that moment. 
But meanwhile, our mind is actually drifting away and thinking about that party that we had planned for tonight or thinking about the pain we are feeling with this person or wondering if I'm actually dressed, you know, in my best or how is that person dressed or why is that person behaving that way or, you know, whatever it might be, right? And so a psychological kind of, um, you know, dimension to spirituality is to me a very valuable device through which to understand the inner journeys that the great prophets from all you know, great faiths and traditions, to the best of my knowledge, the inner journey that all of them were guiding and inviting us to make. And that, of course, also takes us into the arena of mysticism because the mystics were mostly and deeply invested and concerned about that inner journey. Now, on the other side, I would also offer that psychology, when it is divorced from spirituality, it runs the risk of being very confined, of not going deep enough in framing and asking some of the greatest questions in life and can only then take a much more limited path towards giving us reassurance and clarity and insight. And so when, when psychologists open themselves up to these deeper existential spiritual like you know, goals and spiritualists open up to the recognition of a deeper psychological journey, I think you have the possibility of a very powerful intersection. Now, in terms of is there an evolutionary sort of model for this? I want to offer you a couple of thoughts. One is a model that has recently emerged in the field of psychology, especially in uh, human development. And I, I like the model. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's an it's a eye-opening kind of you know, way to think about the evolution psychologically of the human condition. And what it, you know, what it talks about, and um, uh, Bob Keegan from the Harvard School of Education is one of the pioneers in this model. Right? And what this model says is that at a very primitive state, you know, the human condition is what you might call, I may not have the language right, right? Because it's been a while since I studied that model, but I, I kind of just generally understand the concept well enough. So bear with me as I might just approximate the language, right? But at that, at that kind of first very basic level, you're kind of like very dependent. You are a socialized mind because you are just absorbing some stuff from what your parents are telling you, your culture is telling you, your teachers at school are telling you, your organization is telling you, or et cetera, from the culture, right? And you're just like seeking to be invested in whatever it is that you are being told is right or wrong from the outside without thinking for yourself. That's the first state, the dependent state. The next state you come to is if you want to call it the independent state. You start thinking for yourself and you start asking yourself, why should I actually, you know, react this way to this thing? Why should I believe my father or mother or my society or my culture about this is the right way to do things and you know or react in this way or to be with these people or etc intuitively it's not making sense to me i'm not from within feeling a great sense of comfort with this path or etc so you start thinking for yourself you start looking for other people who are kindred spirits like you you gravitate in those directions and you start creating a world that looks more like the world that you would like to you know self you know self author you know for yourself all right so you go from this socializing minds to this more kind of um, self-authoring kind of mind. You are more independent rather than dependent. But then there's a third and final stage to get to, which is a stage where you realize that actually you also need to grow and learn so much and that there is this beautiful porous kind of boundary between you and the world around you where life teaches you things, people teach you things, experience teaches you things, and you're constantly evolving. You do have your anchors, you do have certain core beliefs, you do have a purpose, but you're also continually, humbly opening yourself up to new realizations and new learnings because wisdom out there is boundless. <laughs> so we can constantly expand our cup of wisdom, right? And so there's that third stage of what you might call interdependence between you and the world around you. You're not going to blindly take something because a person in a position of authority says it or an institution or an expert or what have you. You're not going to be just, you know, stubbornly anchored in your own view about something. You're constantly going to remain in that state, the dual state of both being anchored, but also being curious and constantly evolving and refining your model. And that is in the psychological model considered the highest state of human attainment. So that's one model that I really like from a spiritual standpoint. One model I like is from the Gita, right? The Gita is um, one of India's most deeply revered and sacred texts from the yoga and Hindu traditions. And something in that book that really struck a chord with me at an early stage was where it said that humanity, every individual 
is in one of three states. Some of us are in that stage where we are in the here and now in life and we just accept it for what we see through our senses. Whatever our material engagement with the world is, is the way we see the world. We do not accept or realize or are curious that there is more to reality than just what we meet and see from our senses. Then comes a stage where the soul within starts to stir and the soul starts to ask, I think I've been there. I think I've done that. This seems to me to be a repetition of just cycles I've gone through. And, you know, I, I just feel a little bit sort of jaded, you know, by having to kind of go through the same thing again and again and again. There's got to be more. There's got to be more to what it is that, um, you know, that, that life is about, that my consciousness is about, that this universe is about. And in that stage, the person starts to become deeply hungry to find a way to transcend, to go beyond, to question, to discover deeper, harder to perceive and experience kinds of truths. And they start seeking and they start searching and they start looking. And so that's that second state of a seeker. And that's in many ways a beautiful state to be because you're starting to move beyond just the mechanical exercise of your sensory and material experiences in life. And then there is a third state. And in that third state, that hunger that propels somebody to be a seeker gets so alive and gets to be so directed that the seeker then meets with the right path, the right teacher, the right journey towards truth that they can make. And then the real adventure begins. The adventure between you and nature. The adventure where you, for the rest of your life, now have a teaching, a path that you are seeking to internalize, make one with yourself and use it to expand your consciousness to its fullest potential. So it's a beautiful model because each of us can, I'm sure, map ourselves as predominantly being in one state or the other. Maybe some of us are in the state where we feel very comfortable and just at peace with like, I got this family, I got this job, things are fine. I know I'm aging and that I can't control, but fundamentally, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm eating the right food, you know, I'm, I'm okay. So that's one state, right? The next state is, you know, that's there, but I'm, I'm looking for something more. I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm searching here, I'm, I'm talking there, I'm reading this book, I'm, you know, I, I, I don't know what the path is, but I know there's got to be more, you know. And then the third state, right, where, where, you, where you go to path and you're steadily progressing on that path. So, um, you know, there's so much more that we can talk about some of these very beautiful questions that all of you are asking. And, um, you know, I, I hope that, you know, in the limited confines of the time we have, you're finding some of these ideas to be, be of value. So a question I like, and you've kind of actually touched on a couple of these, but even I'm curious. So uh, Lisa writes, I'm curious to know who is a current thinker who is influencing your own growth and development, or perhaps a book that you would recommend that has had an impact on you in recent. You know, it's funny that... Um, you say that it's a powerful question. The reason I say it's funny is because, uh, you know, I, I've, you know, for the people that I've had a deep felt connection with, living or dead, to be honest, I've never really believed that they're dead. <laughs> you know, I have never really felt that their spirit was not ever alive and ever present. I think I can do more to tune into that spirit and to feel their presence in a more tangible way so that it can guide me, you know, towards where it is that I need to go. But this distinction between forces, between souls that are in a physical form in front of me versus those that are 10,000 miles away or those that are 10,000 years in the past, etc. Somehow it's not mattered to me as much as maybe it should, you know. So that's one, uh, you know, pause I was having when you were asking that question because I don't want to answer the question in a certain way as to betray my own truth, which is that there are a lot of people not in a body today who are actually, to me, it's not that I'm, I'm saying that I have some kind of like visions of these people in some way, but I just intuitively feel very invested in seeking to build a channel of um, ongoing guidance, you know, and communion, you know, with them. But that's it. If you had to distill it down mathematically to people who are contemporaries of ours, you know, living and thriving in today's time, that's an interesting question. That's an interesting question. So, you know, since I drew a lot of my spiritual wisdom from, you know, from Yogananda, he has an organization called Self-Realization Fellowship that he founded exactly 100 years ago in 1920. And, you know, among other things, besides being a very vibrant, you know, resource for all his teaching, 
he had also invested in creating a community of monks and nuns, you know, spiritual truth seekers, deeply invested in uh, attuning themselves, you know, to his life and his teaching and ultimately make their own growth, but also seek to support the advancement of uh, his mission. And um, so these monks and nuns have, in fact, been like my you know, greatest resource in times of uh, inquiry and curiosity and need and hunger. Uh, there is a, you know, organization in India called Yogoda Satsang Society which is a mouthful for those of us who are you know not from you know native hindi speaking in india but uh, but just for those of us who are tuning in from india that's his organization in india and there are again swamis or monks there from the age of about 10 you know i have found that community to be for me you know the most um, you know the most um, helpful uh, in, in with regard to some of these questions beyond that i do want to say that there are a number of i think thinkers today who are doing some really powerful and beautiful work not necessarily a contemporary, but somebody who, you know, passed on just a few years ago, Stephen Covey, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, to me is a tremendous, you know, tremendous resource for linking the inner and the outer. Dr. David Burns, you know, the person I mentioned who has a preeminent force in cognitive behavior therapy, another incredible force, and his books have been tremendously instructive and inspirational for me. Dan Siegel from UCLA, another preeminent psychotherapist of our time, you know, some of his work has been tremendously instructive and uh, really a powerful melding of multiple disciplines of science with an intuitional like spiritual core to it that I find that he also speaks about is, is beautiful as well. I think there are a number of scientists today who are doing some incredible work. There's a book that was out recently by Daniel Goldman and Richie Davidson on altered traits about the discoveries that they're making about the frontiers of meditation and science, you know, the fusion of those two. But him and Daniel Goldman, you know, that work is, is a beautiful, you know, explication of some of this latest science. Um, you know, last time we had Scott Barry Kaufman, I think his book has so much great distillation and compilation of some of the science as well. Um, Adam Grant is doing some incredible work, you know, um, in a whole range of disciplines around also helping advance and deepen our understanding of the human condition. So, so I borrow, I sample, I, you know, um, drink from the scientific fountain as much as from the mystics and the spiritual fountain and studying lives of great leaders from history. And then, of course, curating stories from my own students and, you know, seeking to discover things from my own journey. Any and all of those are the um, sources that have been of great insights to me. Thank you, Paul. Um, if you have one last question, I'm happy to, or any last final comment you want to share from, from our friends in the audience? So I'm going to combine a couple questions, and these ones are actually seeking practical advice uh, that kind of fits today's times. And so <clears throat> one question is, our organization has many frontline healthcare workers who have handled the crisis. Are there easy to implement practices to help them cope, reflect, accept what they had just experienced? So basically coping with uh, crisis type states. And then kind of Interrelated is a question around how to improve patience and, lins and listening during critical and tough conversations. And so basic basically the person feels that they're a little bit aggressive and dynamic, but but are trying to figure out solutions to that. And they both kind of resonate with the same kind of inner aspects of life. So I thought you could tackle both of them at the same time. I'll put one of them on the, on the screen. Thank you for asking these. And it reminds me of a question that I also got struck with from here which I didn't get a chance here to talk about, but I just read it out to you because it's just so heartfelt, you know? This uh, member of our community is asking, how do you find room to renew and re-energize when the stress demands and needs for leadership wear you out? I am deeply spiritual. I have good habits of practice. I'm able to let go and find peace. However, as a healthcare worker, the stream of needs does not end. People keeping on asking for more. They expect me to have answers to what's next and what it, when it's uncertain. I have lost close friends, employees, etc. from COVID, yet everyone looks to me to say that it will be okay and here is the next step. I want to you know, take time, create space, but that's not appropriate at this time. Any suggestions? First of all, thank you, you know, for what you're doing. Certainly, you know, those of us in healthcare and those of us beyond who are you know, seeking to bring our best right, to our families, to our communities, and to our workplace. Because I know it's heroic at a time like this when we are battling our own inner demons as well. I'm deeply grateful for all that you've done. I'm reminded of um, one practice that I saw with Mother Teresa. Notice that this is a saint, a woman, who was deeply invested in attending to the pain that she saw in the community around her, of people who were deprived of all kinds of just basic, basic material comforts at the time that they were sick and that they were dying or they were deeply hungry and starving, etc. 
and she was seeking to bring them into her fold. And so she started this missionaries, you know, for charity, right? But even as she was doing that, even as she was so deeply invested in these people, she had a practice where every day in the morning, which which was what all the missionaries of charity do, they get up, they go to their little kind of prayer room, and they deeply immerse themselves in devotional prayer. I know it's for at least 30 minutes. I don't recall exactly how long, but they do that. And what I don't know is how beyond that, they might be also stealing time here and there, perhaps at the end of the day, perhaps in the break in the middle, et cetera, to do some more communion like that. And I want to offer that up to us is because, you know, we all need to rejuvenate. We all need to reconnect with our call. We all need to actually draw from that fountain from within. Because again, as Mother Teresa once said, you cannot give what you do not have. Remember that. You cannot give what you do not have. So A, I would offer you, it's really critical for each of us to develop a certain practice where in the early light of day and or in the closing hours of the evening, sometime when we are not tired, but are able to bring our best, bring our best to that moment, we need to create certain practices of rejuvenation, whether they are prayer and communion, whether they're about some spiritual reading and reflection, whether they're about meditation, whether they're about just, um, yeah, just doing some kind of long reflective walk just with our own selves. A practice of solitude, a rejuvenation of spirit has to be a key part of refueling ourselves every day because then we can actually bring our best to all of the other responsibilities and demands on our time. And we can be there for the long haul rather than being burnt out in five days. That's number one. Number two, what I would offer is that become aware of where you are relative to your core and make sure that you create some kind of points of recalibration during the day so that you don't allow yourself to get too far from that very centered, calm, joyful place from within. Even when there are all these demands on the outside, and sometimes they're so extreme that you just cannot help. And I appreciate that and I respect that. When that happens, we just have to go with that flow. And all the years and weeks and months of work that we've done to, you know, every day nurture that core will help us in those moments. But aside from those relatively extreme, you know, moments in the rest of our usual, you know, affairs in the day, it is critical to become aware of how this game is going between your inner and your outer. And to take even small moments, even small moments, five seconds here, 20 seconds there to retreat. If you have to, to the bathroom or to your office desk, or just close your eyes and just be there with your own self to get those points of quick little rejuvenation and seek to create through again, affirmation, chanting, visualization, prayer, meditation, through any of these kinds of practices, seek to create a certain muscle inside you where you can quickly move from the outer kind of, you know, madness to the inner sweetness. Even just in five seconds, you can switch your mind back to that. And then you bring that back again. You bring that sweetness back into the world again. Again, when you need to, you go back there for just a few seconds, go back there. I seek, for example, before any lecture I give, any class I teach, any session I do, typically often every critical meeting that I have to go, I seek to ask myself that question. And if I can, I seek to go within for a few minutes to just get to take, if you want to call it like a spiritual bath, you know, for just a couple of minutes to activate my best self and then to walk in to, because I owe it to them. I owe it to, to that community to be able to bring my best game there. We are on time. So I think this is the moment where I seek to invite all of us to a point of closure and to invite us to look forward to another intersection. I wish you all the best for the weeks ahead. Thank you for joining us. Namaste.